0: Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on today's episode, we are going to be getting into an album that Max and I have probably both listened to a hundred times, an album that we love. And honestly, surprise has taken this long to get into this album, but we figured we'd not pick favorites. But here we are. We are going to be doing the album Groovin' with Jug by the great Richard Groove Holmes and the fantastic uh, Gene, Jug, Ammons. So yeah, I'm so excited to get into this one. Max and I are going to have a lot to talk about. We love this album. We know this album very well, so it's definitely going to be a really fun episode. Um, And we're not going to do a listener question or a jazz question of the day today, but I do want to say if anyone has a listener question or any questions for us in general, we'd love to answer them um, on the podcast or just directly so feel free to reach out to us on our email the jazz jam podcast at gmail.com or through our website or instagram we'd love to hear any questions and we'd love to feature one on the podcast if you have a question so definitely go ahead and, and uh send one in if you've got one um but yeah let's get right into to the album max unless you have anything else you want to talk about before we get into it let's let's get right into it
1: yeah i have nothing else to say other than we are playing favorites with this episode
0: we definitely and are we're going to
1: <laughs> and we're gonna prove why. You know, there, there's a lot of reasons why it's it's one of our top top albums that both you and I enjoy. We've probably been listening to this album what a decade? Yeah, Something oh like
0: yeah, that. for sure. I that's probably I think you introduced this album to me at some point, but it's I yeah. did
1: I introduced it to you and our drummer at the time, Travis Slaughter, who uh, another great friend and musician, and he's got quite a record collection himself. So I'm sure he, if he doesn't have this on vinyl, he soon will because um, he has so many. But yeah, you can always add, you know.
0: Yeah, this vinyl is actually sitting on like it's in my record player right now because I've been listening to it so much getting ready for this episode. I see Max is holding up his copy as I've,
1: yeah. got, <laughs> I've got mine in hand. Yeah. Um, and it just makes a lot of difference when you ha- when you have the physical vinyl copy rather than the CD even though we're going to get into more of that and and we may talk about some tracks that are included on the CD rather than just the LP version. Um, But, you know, you get liner notes, you get the composers of tunes, you get the story behind the record, you get the record label. And a lot of times you get, you know, the number that tells you what version it is, what reissue number it is. Um, And of course the pictures are always great too. So I, I like the physical copy. And it really helps with this.
0: Yeah, I agree. And there's sometimes there's like things that are in liner notes that like you just can't find anywhere else. Like they're not on the Internet or on Wikipedia. You need the actual copy of the record where it says it on the back sometimes to to learn some of these stories. So it's a great thing to have to look through when you're, you know, adding to your your listening or your collection.
1: That's right. And this particular album is also neat because it's partially a live album grooving with Jug uh, was recorded uh, partially in you know at a live recording at a club in Los Angeles. It's on the Pacific Jazz label. It's basically the result of a Monday night session at the Black Orchid in Los Angeles where Groove Holmes was in the house band and Jug, a.k.a. Gene Ammons, the great saxophonist, was brought in to join them. Groove was a tremendous organist, and he had first moved... Um, to L.A. from where he was playing in Camden, New Jersey, and I think in parts of Philly. Uh, and this is one of his first records that we have. It's from 1961. It's on the Pacific Jazz label. If you don't know, Pacific Jazz Records was an L.A.-based label founded in 1952, and it featured a lot of cool jazz and some soul jazz artists. It had musicians like Les McCann, the great pianist we Lost recently. Joe Pass, Paul Desmond, Wes Montgomery, cats like Jerry Mulligan, and many other West Coast players. The label was soon sold in 1965 to Liberty Records, which then merged with United Artists Records in 1971. Then it was bought by EMI in 1979 and Mosaic Records reissued some albums originally on the Pacific label, and then Blue Note would go on to buy the catalog in the 1990s, and they still own it today. So a lot of cool history behind the record label as well. And um, I just want to quote a little snippet from Wikipedia. This says, quote, The All Music Review called it an excellent album, which finds Ammons and Richard Groove Holmes co-leading a soul jazz hard bop organ combo. Three of the eight selections were produced by Richard Bach in a Los Angeles studio in the afternoon, while the other five were recorded several hours later at an L.A. club called The Black Orchid. Ammons and Holmes proved to be a strong combo in both settings, although their playing is somewhat looser at The Orchid, unquote. And I think that's very true. The, the live tracks, to me, come out just a little bit more interesting and spontaneous and there's a little bit more interaction between the musicians on the live live tracks because they're feeding off the energy of the crowd there's more interaction they're probably communicating more you know studio you get some communication but it's a little limited and so the live live tunes here speak out to me
0: yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think the energy that we get, and we'll hear it in the some of the snippets that we play, just the energy at the Black Orchid. It's great. And I just love hearing, yeah, like the musicians interact. I love hearing them talk and hearing kind of the audience react a little bit too. So that, that definitely uh, appeals to me about the when they're playing at the orchid and just kind of, yeah, just the more jam kind of feel that we get there with it being, um, a live setting there. So, but let's talk about the, the personnel on the album. Um, we have Richard groove is his nickname. So if we refer to someone as groove, we're talking, talking about Richard Holmes, which is the organist on the album. It's his album. Um, And Groove was born in Camden, New Jersey, which is just across the river from uh, the jazz organ capital of the world, which is Philadelphia. Um, He was born on May 2nd of 1931. And an interesting thing about Groove is he was primarily a bass player at first who switched to the Hammond organ without any formal training on the piano. So just a bass player that switched over to play the organ, which you'll hear in his left hand. uh, There's a lot of... uh, inclinations or you know you can hear that he he has a great idea of how the bass works and he's uh he's self-taught and his self-taught style is just infection it's it's strong baseline under each tune uh he worked in small clubs in Philadelphia, New Jersey until he was discovered by Les McCann in 1960 and uh, Max talked about Les McCann we just lost Les McCann unfortunately but Les McCann was on Pacific Records at the time And then Les McCann brought uh, Groove out to the West Coast and signed him with Pacific. And he started to record with greats such as Ben Webster on his first album here with Gene Ammons on the second album with Pacific and just started to really receive more national attention at that point. And like I said, Les McCann played a really key role in Groove's career. Uh, It was 1960 when he met up with him in Philadelphia at a restaurant And uh, it's just a fun little story where uh, Les McCann says, I remember going to look for him, and I was told to look in this little restaurant, and it's one of the soul kind of places with greens and beans. And he (laughs) said, I I walked in, and I saw this huge person sitting at a table, and the whole table was covered. And Les was thinking to himself, he said, I thought I could eat, but then he saw this. He saw a groove eating all this food at this little hole-in-the-wall restaurant. And uh, and then the capper to the whole thing was that he asked for a diet coke with all the food, and they just started laughing and they they hit it right off as he introduced himself to 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 Groove. So I thought that was a fun story about how how Les met Groove. He had to literally go find him. They were like, he was like, I've heard of this guy, I need to find him. They're like, go look in this little restaurant, and that's that was his first interaction with Groove. So then they became friends, and he uh, brought him out to the West Coast, and Groove ended up recording many. Uh, albums for Pacific Jazz, and then moved over to record labels such as Prestige, Groove Merchant, Merchant, and Muse as well. And he was just very well liked and revered by other musicians and and organists especially. Um, A lot of organists would say that Groove was underappreciated for how how good he was. Um, And he uh, died due to a heart attack at the age of 60 on June 29, 1991 in St. Louis, Missouri, After a long struggle with prostate cancer, and one of his last gigs, he performed in a wheelchair at the 1991 Chicago Blues Festival with his longtime friend uh, and singer Jimmy Witherspoon. So he was a musician up until the end. Even I mean, it was there were stories of him playing when he had cancer, and it was just like he wasn't you know himself anymore, but he still loved playing and would play even in a wheelchair. So. Yeah, just a, a fantastic organist, and from other accounts, a, a great person as well.
1: Have I told you I've played with somebody that was Groove Holmes's neighbor, and he knew Groove and played with him?
0: No, that's insane, though. That's so cool. Where you? Where was this? Yeah, it, uh,
1: it was on a, a few gigs with a, a cat I play with. He was doing sort of a Western swing sort of review show, and the steel guitar player, Russ Weaver was on the gig and he's, you know, older cat and I got to talking to him and Russ was Groove's neighbor. And he was telling me little stories about Groove Holmes, said he was a really nice guy Um, and they knew each other. And, you know, I went on Russ's Facebook page and scrolled down and and there's some references to Groove. And so that's a nice little connection that sometimes you get to play with people who played with these guys from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. And that was really neat. I mean, I wish I knew groove. He died kind of young at 60. Yeah. Um, And that's the story for a lot of cats. Another guy that died kind of young was the saxophonist on the record. Gene Jug Ammons. He was also nicknamed the boss. We'll get into his nicknames in a second. If you don't know, Gene was born in Chicago on April 14th, 1925. To a very musical family, his dad was the influential boogie-woogie style pianist, Albert Ammons, who also played at Harry Truman's 1949 inauguration. And Gene picked up the saxophone at an early age while listening to the great Lester Young, I imagine. And he was performing with local bands while still a teenager, went on the road for a year with the trumpeter King Colax and his band, And then soon joined Billy Eckstein's musically progressive big band when Gene was just 19 years old. It said he earned the nickname Jug when straw hats were ordered for the band, but none of them fit his head. So there we get Jughead. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a big head. And that's where Jug comes from. And, And we'll refer to Gene Ammons as Jug Ammons or Jug quite a bit. Um, That band, the Billy Eckstine band, was known for including members such as Dexter Gordon, Miles Davis, Sonny Stitt, Bird, and many more jazz royalty, including Gene Jug Ammons. He went on to play with Woody Herman and then started a budding solo career. Gene also had a group with saxophonist Sonny Stitt, and they were a powerhouse two-tenor dueling group that would play on and off together up until Jug's death. They were really active from 1950 to 1952 and then they would get back into their their dueling sax group in the early 60s. Gene also recorded many prolific recordings in the 50s and 60s. And one thing to note about Jug is that his career had two major bumps in the road, as he was unfairly made an example out of when he served two prison sentences for narcotics possession. The first from 1958 to 1960, and the second was 1962 to 69. He stayed really relevant during those times, though, because the prestige record label, which is the one he was signed to most of his career, continued to release already recorded material during the time he was in prison. So his name was still getting out there. You know, everybody was thinking about Gene Hammons, even when he was away and imprisoned. Um, Upon his release from prison in 69, he signed the largest prestige label contract ever offered at that time. They sold a lot of Jug records. You know, he could connect with both jazz listeners and non-jazz listeners. And that's not true of every great jazz musician. You know, Jug had soul and, and other things we'll talk about later on when we talk about the music. Um, Gene continued to play and record until his death on August 6, 1974. He died from bone cancer and pneumonia when he was just 49 years old. He was known for his big boss sound, and that's the reason, reason for his other nickname, The Boss. He was also very expressive on ballads, and he's regarded as an influence on soul jazz and the soul jazz concept or style. While Jug always came from his bop and blues roots. He's a very soulful player. He incorporated a ton of bop tendencies, and he was heavy on the swing, and that's why I really dig him.
0: I was going to say, he reminds me of someone I know and that I uh, get the (laughs) pleasure of listening to a lot.
1: Uh, One Max Levy.
0: Yeah, that's a guy.
1: And then we round out the quartet with two other cats. I'm assuming they were either, either local guys. Somehow or another, basically, on Monday nights, they would have... Uh, routine jazz uh, performances at the Black Orchid. And so two of the cats that would play with groove were Gene Edwards on the guitar and Leroy Henderson on the drum set. And so they're included on this album as well. All right, we get the first track on the album called Good Vibrations. On Spotify, this this tune... So there's a lot to talk about initially just with the song title and where it comes from. I know this song, Good Vibrations, as a as a blues tune from Gene Ammons called Happy Blues. And according to the back of the album, this song, Good Vibrations, is written by Groove Holmes. Or was it actually written by trumpeter and flugelhorn player Art Farmer, as Wikipedia says, and that may be true because Art Farmer was on a Gene Ammons sort of jam session record where they play this song and they play this melody under the name, the happy blues.
0: And as it was released later later on, like if you're listening to it on Spotify, the title is happy blues. And then in parentheses, it says good vibrations.
1: Yeah. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Spotify. It says both titles.
0: Yep. And some of the other, another, uh, song hitting the jug has the same, like kind of kind of thing going on too.
1: That's a little different. Hitting the Jug is also known as Swan Blues because the singer King Pleasure put out a vocalese version yep. of the original track from the the album Boss Tenor from Gene Ammons. Yep. And, so, and so he sings Jug solo and, and he puts words to the melody. Yeah, So that's why that one's called Swan Blues in parentheses. This one is a little more... Uh, it's, it's a little different because it has to do, I think with copyright and, and who, you know, who, um, published the tune or maybe the song wasn't published or it's a published under a different name either way, because it's a Groove Holmes album, they probably just credited that tune to Groove Holmes because it was easier or, you know, that's the, the, the title he wanted to put it under. I'm not entirely sure.
0: I've seen that happen sometimes with other albums where it's like, I'm trying to think, it's a Jimmy Smith album, and I'm trying to think of, there's like one song where they call it one thing, but I'm like, that's not the name of this tune. It's a different tune. I'm trying to think of what the album is.
1: Oh, um, Acidic something. uh uh, i know what you're talking about
0: yeah there's like some tune where it's like that's not what this tune is and then in later recordings i think they probably have to fix those copyright issues and that might be what happened here is that originally they just were like oh we'll just call it this and credit it to groove but then at some point someone's like this is not your song and they have to pay those copyright fees and then they change it on the album and put the the real you know the actual name of the tune
1: right because I'm literally looking at the back of the lp record <laughs> and yeah. it says it says good vibrations and parentheses written by groove Holmes yeah and that's that's just not true uh it's the happy blues written by either art farmer or gene Ammons that was on a record from 1956
0: the, um, yeah groove was not he wasn't there and had nothing to do with that
1: no no he wasn't there <laughs> <laughs> Not even its Spirit. He was probably at the... Uh, he was at probably at the, the restaurant with its 16 plates <laughs> on his table
0: <laughs> and a Diet Coke.
1: <laughs> he was getting his greens and beans on. Yeah. That's for sure. um, so anyway, that's an interesting note about the first tune. Uh, When we talk about the music specifically, to start off, it's good to hear a live jazz album. We went into it a little bit. Um, The setting is a little looser than a studio setting, and oftentimes you get more in-the-moment, In the moment, spontaneous improvisations. And we get that here a little bit. The song form of Good Vibrations, a.k.a. the happy blues, is a 12-bar blues or jazz blues as we know it. The melody is made up of one lick repeated three times in the form, and that whole thing is repeated twice. So you play the one lick six times. This version is quite a bit faster. It's around 185 to 190 beats per minute than the earlier version of Jug's uh, jam session record called the Happy Blues. They, they did it much more medium tempo, around 128 beats per minute. So they're treating the, the melody and the tune differently here. Um, I, I think it works really well to do it a little bit faster, especially for a first track of the album. You know, you want that energy, that camaraderie, uh, and it's just a little bit more fun at this tempo. Also with a tune like this, I think it's cool to do a faster tempo because you have less players on the record. Whereas the Gene Ammons album, you had more players and more horns. And so they all added differently. And and there were sometimes uh, background horn parts uh, behind the solos. And so a slower tempo sometimes works better for that too. The cool part to this opening track is that everyone is featured with a solo, including the drummer, another nice way to start the album. The organ opens it up, playing a chorus up front before Jug enters with the head. I love the rhythmic response from the guitar and rhythm section during the melody, too. Jug gets the first solo, and I think he gets the first solo on every track on the album. Is that true?
0: I think so. I don't think there's a song where he doesn't get the first solo. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, just something to notice. That's a good point,
1: yeah. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe. We'll we'll see. But I do I do know a lot of this.
0: You know, that's pretty typical, though, to let the sax player go first.
1: That's true. There's a lot of ideas expressed here from Jug that one recognizes from his playing. Overall, it's impactful in how it grows and develops in intensity. It's sort of a sizzling roll that becomes energetic and ever so swinging. It really works to tell a bit of a story. He's great at repeating almost riff-like ideas that are interwoven with moments of double time bop-like lines but always then bringing home rhythmic ideas that feel really really good let's listen to the last two choruses of gene solo to hear that in action <laughs>
0: It's so like in your face at times, but he's like so good dynamically because it's just like when he wants you to feel it, you're going to feel it, you know, and the dynamics are so nice and he's not afraid to really hit you with some stuff.
1: It's hard not to feel anything during that. I mean, you got to get checked out.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and well, That's... I'll keep, I'll keep saying that.
2: Yeah,
0: your um... blood sugar might be low if yeah, if you're not feeling it.
1: You might need to get some more soul food in your diet. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Go visit uh, Groove at the little diner <laughs> on the corner.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um, et, et the, there's there's such emotiveness to his playing too. You know, like when you end an idea to do ba da bop, ba, de, ba, de, de, da be da da. You know, there's a like, there's nat, there's sort of falls, but they're not necessarily full force intentional. They just sort of happen. Like it's it's part of his sound. You know this and we'll 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 get into that more as we go on um but that's another cool thing to notice and the rhythm, the rhythmic hits he's doing you know that's also very important when you're playing together with people and you're the only horn and you have a rhythm section a lot of times the rhythm section can play with you easier if you're playing more rhythmically in certain spots in your solo right yeah for sure Um, So that's just one thing to note there. Groove also has the next solo on the organ. He portrays himself to be a master of repetition and use of uh, of riff ideas tied alongside double-time fast ideas. Uses of blatant chromaticism are used too, right at Minute Marker 437. Another technique used by organists, he does, uh, uh, organists like him, that he does is also hold on to a lingering chord or tone for a long time while adding other ideas on top of it or underneath it. And we get this sort of layering effect that occurs. I know I've heard you, Dwayne, do that.
0: Oh, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> and that's a great technique. Let's listen to that together to check that out.
0: And uh, one thing I want to point out, I have one thing that I want us to listen to during, because this is a great snippet that Max has got. I'm going to say something at a certain point, um, and I want you to listen for what Grooves is doing with his left hand. He's not walking a baseline at this point. He pedals on the root for 12 entire bars a whole time through a chorus. He's pedaling just the root. And then when they go back into a like a walking baseline in the next chorus, it's so grooving. So I'm going to point out when he starts pedaling that. So just, uh, just listen for me to key that but yeah let's listen to that that snippet here max <laughs> All right, here it comes. Oh, that's so hip. You can hear the guitar player changing from chord to chord, but Groove is just pedaling the root, the entire all 12 bars.
1: And they say stay away from the root. Come on.
0: That, I mean <laughs>
1: <laughs> The other thing to listen for is the guitar, Gene Edwards during that, and how the guitar accompanies an organist, especially on an organ solo. And a lot of times we think about organ trio. Often it's the organ guitar drum set. Other times it's organ, saxophone, drum set, and the guitar plays a very important role in the organ trio setup. Uh, a lot of times they spec, you know, they're more specific about their chords that they're playing, and so they help with the harmony, and that can let the organist uh, play more freely yep. and do more things like layering, you know, sounds, and and not pay attention so much just to the harmony. It kind of opens up the sound and approach, and that's what's going on there too.
0: Yeah, and especially when organists are soloing, just to have that harmony behind without having it have to come from the organ player, it allows ju- or sorry groove to just pedal the root there while he's just he's playing through the changes. So we're still getting a feel for that the twelve bar blues changes, um, but it allows groove a little bit more freedom to, to express himself there for sure
1: that along with the rhythmic comping that the guitarist is doing yep. helps with the groove no pun intended <laughs> um with groove solo so that's nice too yeah uh he continues a little further with the solo repeating a catchy four-note idea that closes the organ solo and we go into a guitar solo gene edwards can really swing on the guitar he plays a number of riffs and lines Sometimes he's reminiscent of Wes Montgomery to me Mm -hmm. later on in in his solo, too. So let's listen just a little bit to Gene Edwards. Yeah. Yeah so you know we we won't talk too much about the guitarist and and drummer but we'll we'll mention them um a few more times so more to come with them and then at the after the guitar solo jug trades fours with the drummer Leroy Henderson for two choruses and if you don't know when you trade fours you're trading four bars each so you're you're trading four bars worth of solos between in this case, the the saxophone and the drums, and that's typical in this setting, instrumental setting. You keep the form while the saxophone plays over four measures, and then the drum solo over the next four measures. That would normally come next into the form, and then Jug takes it over the next four measures. So you're keeping the form during the trading section, and and that's how you kind of do it.
0: Yeah, and so while the sax player is playing, it'll be the entire band with the rhythm section, right? So if Max and right. I are playing in a trio, it's going to be all three of us playing when Max is soloing for four bars. But then the next four bars is just the drummer soloing. I'm, I'm not going to keep playing as the organist, while, and that's what they do here. Um, is it's just going to trade between the entire group and then just the drummer.
1: That's right. There's great energy to nice ideas from Leroy on the drums. I was surprised about how much space he uses during moments of his soloing. Here's the last four bars of the drum solo. And I want you to listen to the space that he uses and how well it sets up for the melody to come right back in. There we go. So, you know, he, he's sort of setting up the melody to come back in. He's not just, okay, I got another four bars or I'll solo and do whatever, uh, you know, whatever comes to mind and whatever I want to be very busy. No, he, he's taking it very musically. Yeah, It's very professional. Um, and it's a nice sort of period to the end of the trading fours sentence in this paragraph that we call <laughs> the song. Good vibrations, AKA happy blues.
0: Yeah, and uh, they'll trade fours a few more times on this uh, this record for sure. I think almost every song has some kind of trade or something going on in it. So we'll we'll get to hear more of that for sure.
1: Right, and the head out. You know, we do two times through the form. They come down dynamically the second time, also. Then there's a cue from Jug with a hit to a final chord to end it. Great opener to the album. Lots of awesome energy interaction. Um, ever so swinging, and and we get. Uh, Another great tune on this album from the second track called Willow Weep For Me.
0: Yeah, and this tune is a standard. There's only a, a couple of standards on the album. The rest are originals by either Groover or Jug, but this one is a standard. An awesome tune. It was composed in 1932 by Anne Rennell, and we've actually talked about this song's history before. Um, We did an episode uh, on the album Afternoon in Paris by John Lewis and Sasha Distel. So if you want to know more about this song and its history, you should definitely go and check out. That's a really underrated album. It was actually sent in by a listener, which was awesome. Um so go check out that episode and you'll get to know more about about this tunes history. Um yeah, this is one of my favorite ballads in all of the jazz songbook. It's it's such a such a cool. So the changes are so cool and I I love the way that they played the melody on this version. It's so tasteful and it's just super simple. Sometimes like you don't have to do anything super you like intricate to get your point across, and I love I love the way that they play the melody here. Um, Groove uses a combination of hat half note, dotted quarter note, and quarter note feels in the left hand. So he's um, not doing anything super crazy. Some longer notes, but mixing in some some different uh, different rhythms. And then Jug's vibrato is just so tender and so warm. It if I'll use some Max imagery here, because I, I uh I Uh-oh. I'm getting in the spirit here, Max. I, I I said um it makes you feel like you're wrapped tightly in a blanket, like a nice warm blanket. That's sometimes especially Juggs playing over ballads is just so warm and so comforting. It's it's I could listen to his ballad playing all day. And I also love his dynamics, um, accenting certain notes in the melody, whereas playing some notes with a rounder and softer tone. And I just want you to listen for um, all of those things that I mentioned is we're going to listen to part of the melody and just listen to Juggs playing, um, listen to that dynamics and how simply they, they play the melody. It's not anything super overdone. <laughs>
2: Like cash register in the background. <laughs>
0: just so nice
1: three things to notice about that yep. number one is his style right the vibrato you mentioned number two his ability or his not ability his uh practice or intention or uh, tendency to repeat a note and it doesn't sound repetitious yep you know it's it's like he's talking to the audience. You know, sometimes we repeat words. I keep saying, you know, I want to stop that. but <laughs> <laughs> um, That's one example, right? Don't be afraid to repeat a note and it's a motive. It's adding another aspect to the playing. The third thing is the dynamic within the line that he's playing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, like it's not, he's not going from super soft to super loud, Mm-mm. but he is, but he is moving along with his line. When he goes up towards a high note, that high note is the climax point of that phrase, and it moves that way dynamically too. And those are those are the things to catch for that.
0: Yeah, those are all such great points. His dynamics are just incredible. Like Max said, it's like almost like he's he's talking. Like the way he expresses himself, it's so so emotive. That's a, a great word for it. Um, and I I just love the way that Jug starts his solo on on this track. Uh, so, takes like a super swinging line, and then he takes that idea and uses space and repetition so well. And the way that the band is listening throughout uh, Jug Solo is just awesome. They're obviously all super well-experienced musicians, and they're just listening so well. Um, and they, they'll they swing a little harder at times, but then having the sensibility to follow along with Jug when he brings the dynamics back a little bit, it's super great from, from the rest of the band there. And there's a really cool section towards the end of the solo I want us to listen to. Listen for Jug's all over the horn, freely exp- uh, expressive playing, as well as the dynamics from Jug and the group. I love how he dials it back at the end of his solo. And also listen for the killer, killer bass lines from Groove. He, ba- the groove is just all over the bass lines. You can tell he he's a well-studied uh, bassist and... It's awesome. So let's listen to to this section right here i love how he like some people think of dynamics as like these wide ranging things that have to happen like i need eight bars i need to have this crazy climax for eight measures right but for jug Dynamics are a thing that can come and go so quickly, right? He hits you with that note and then within the next 6 beats he's back down. Like he's not afraid to just be so dynamic and so with and so intentional with every every note that he plays. And
1: that is why he is a master at ballads and not everyone is because you're right. They they're thinking about these things in certain specific ways because that's how you do them. But really, you know, the soul is in how you do those things in different ways and with style. And there's a sense of class here, but also it's unpretentious. You know, it's, it's like both at the same time. And I really dig that. And I, that's kind of, you know, off, off the, the cuff. I'm not, I'm not basing that on any specific musical thing other than just the overall effect of how it comes across to me. And, and that, that's how I get, you know, it's very authentic, mm-hmm. but it's also very um, very great and, and should be appreciated by more people. In some ways, Joe Ammons is a little unnoticed at times in, in the playing by musicians and, and by critics and yada yada. You know, it's like, oh, he, he's that one cat from Chicago who did Boss Tenor. Or they know Canadian Sunset, which is a great recording, yep. and so much so much soul in that, and great lines, and yada yada. But there's a lot more, and this record is part of that a lot more that we're getting.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that that can be said for both Gene Ammons and for Groove Holmes. I mean, I can't tell you, like, when I tell people, you know, oh, I played the jazz organ— everyone knows who jimmy smith is right as as they should right he is the greatest jazz organist of all time um everyone should know who jimmy smith is but then when people are like oh you know like you like jimmy smith and i'm like yeah i love jimmy smith and then i'll list some other people i'll be like but you know a guy that i really like is richard groove holmes and no one has ever heard of him you know even some people who are jazz musicians like are not super familiar with groove holmes you know so i think that that kind of goes for both of these guys and I think this recording does a great job of just showing you how incredible these guys are and like Max was saying Jug's style is confident he's not afraid to be in your face with his dynamics and with his playing he's not afraid to give you everything because he knows he knows how good he is and that's fun you know like it's just it's so confident and that's good because he's that good you know it, it would be different if he wasn't a good and he was just playing like that and it was like overreaching or overbearing it doesn't feel out that way at all from from jug
1: i don't get it i I think you're right obviously it's very confident um but i i receive it as he's got something to say yeah and you know like when you ask yourself you should ask yourself why do i play or why am i playing what do what you know what is my overall goal or purpose um even with this specific song, what is the song trying to say? Yeah. And Ju- and Jug is bringing that out at all times pretty much.
0: And he's not timid. He's not afraid to say what and like we're saying say, you know, we're speaking through the saxophone, right? He's not afraid to say what he thinks and say and you know, he just plays how he wants to play and I I love that. He's confident in his style. He doesn't feel like he has to like there are times when he's just swinging super hard and it's just super bluesy and soulful and this might be why some people don't give him as much credit. He doesn't feel like he always has to play bop lines. It doesn't have to be the most technical, mathy thing ever. Like he's just going to play what feels good to him and I love I love that from him.
1: Absolutely. All right, let's keep going.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, sorry. We're going to just yeah. That's our kudos out to them. We'll do that more, but we'll try to keep it keep it under wraps. But then we get a really cool upper register tone from the organ uh during groove solo. It almost sounds like a piano or an electric piano-esque kind of sound, um, which Groove was kind of known for getting these different kind of timbres and sounds out of the organ, so that's really cool. It's a fairly short uh, solo, some waterfall-sweeping kind of lines from Groove, and then we get a short guitar solo that gets halted by Jug just stomping back in with the melody, just full force, right in your (laughs) face, back in with the melody, which I love that from Jug. Um, Very assertive, you know. And uh, they just play through the A section one time, the A section of the melody. And Jug really belts out this last time through the melody, um, really gives it gives it to us. And then we get such a nice Jug cadenza at the end with some really nice melody quotes. And one thing that really stood out to me here is how much Max Levy, it how much it reminded me of a Max Levy Cadenza and I would say it's safe to say that jugs playing has influenced the way that you play max. How did, how do you feel about that? That statement?
1: I can go to sleep happy because that's exactly what I'm trying to get across. So you nailed it. Uh, jug is, is, is an all time inspiration and I love his cadenzas. Another great cadenza player is Sonny Stitt Mm -hmm. also. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them. John Coltrane. I mean, come on, but, just the what Jug delivers, you know, he'll do a lot of sort of diminished licks in his cadenzas and he'll sort of hint at themes that he's seemingly spontaneously um, conjuring up during the cadenza. I'm sure it's things he's practiced. I'm sure it's things he's worked on. It's stuff he's heard before or he's, you know, hearing in the moment that's relative to how it feels on the horn with the tune that he's playing, yada, yada. Um, I just really, really dig what Jug does on cadenzas, and that's sort of what I've I've um, tried to emulate in my playing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I love, I mean, I love, yeah, there's a lot, just a lot of development in the cadenza, and it just, yeah, it really, this one reminded of so many times, you know, I've listened to a million Max Levy cadenzas, so this one just really, <laughs> really reminded me of you, So, and it's awesome, because I, I know how much Jug you've listened to, so...
1: Yeah. And it's the art of the cadenza. People joke about me and they'll say, oh, there goes Max with his crudenza
2: or (laughs) cadenza.
1: Like, you know, they they try and joke about how how many times I want to do a cadenza and maybe I do them too much. That's that's very possible. But I like it. And there's an art to it. And I don't think it should be poo-pooed. I think it should be explored, examined and adorned because Gene Ammons is one of those cats on the list that can do a great cadenza. And I love some of his arrangements, especially on a ballot like this, you know, eight times out of 10, he's going to do a cadenza. And oh, so yeah. how is, you know, how right. is he going to do it? What's he going to put in it? How long is it going to be? You know, the lengths of some of his cadenzas are not predictable. Sometimes they're kind of short and sometimes they're longer, right? Yeah. They're not, as they're not as long as John Coltrane on. I want to talk about you. Um, or something like that, but but they're pretty lengthy sometimes.
0: Yeah, I was listening to a Joshua Redman record recently. I forget which one it was. I think it was uh the Live of the Village Vanguard. He did a four minute cadenza to open a tune, and I was like, there you are, go. When are we getting into? I think it was the tune Remember, but I don't remember what tune it was to be honest. But I was like, man, I was like this is a, like, four minute cadenza. I mean, Max is you know like yeah. So and one. I thing... Got <laughs> One thing <laughs> about step it up. Yeah, yeah, Max, yeah. We need at least 4 minutes. But one thing about that I want to say is like, you know how Steph Curry has the green light like anytime he wants to shoot, he can shoot. That's how oh, I feel sure. about Max with his cadenzas. I'm like, you ju- you and I just love to listen, so it's like, yeah, if someone doesn't like it, that's their problem. Uh, Max has the green light for me as far as cadenzas go.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I will I will appreciate that. I mean, yeah, just point at me. I'm ready to go. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> All right. So from the great cadenza, we get the third track on the album from Jug Ammons called "Juggin' Around. This is a Gene Ammons original. You can guess where he got the title from. Um, It's also used as a title of a reissued record called uh, "Juggin' Around that was originally uh, called the Swingin'est, which is a Benny Green and Gene Ammons record. So this title has been used both as a record title and as a song title. It's an A-A-B-A form. We're in the key of A-flat. It begins with a four-bar intro from saxophone, and then the rhythm section enters in the middle of the first A section. There's a fast tempo where we're around 320 to 330 beats per minute. I mean, we are zooming. Um, And you'll notice that I don't think there's an organ solo. And maybe he said I'll lay out on this one.
0: Yeah, I'd be laying out too. I mean, if you listen to his (laughs) left hand, I'm like... That's one thing that I get listening to this. I'm like, dude, I can play that fast for a while, but I can't, like, this is so fast for so long. His left hand is moving. I remember one time we had gig max. You remember this? I think we had six gigs, five gigs in three days or something. It was something crazy. And by the end of the last gig, i'm I'm like max can we take a set break he's like yeah what's going on i was like i gotta go ice my left hand like and this is (laughs) this is like if i did this for any time like this long i'd be icing my left hand again so i literally had we had to take a set break so i could go ice my left hand because it was hurting so bad
1: i will never forget that yeah that's true
0: luckily that was the last gig of the the run
1: that's right you made it to the end
0: yeah barely
1: oh my gosh all (laughs) right So, so with this tune, they, they do a two bar break into the saxophone solo. It's not clean, but it's still very cool. I I dig that arrangement. It's classic. Why mess with it? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's awesome lines during uh, his first chorus with hints of riff, like ideas sprinkled in and we get some jug isms, if you will, which is just the culmination of all the things we've been talking about. Here's one example to listen to together. Yeah. So it's almost like he's moaning or screaming when he's going up there in the higher register. Um, I really like that. I mean, that, that, that's something that's influential to me. It sort of comes from the swing era, the late swing era into the early bebop era where it's very cool to do that because Jug is so superb at mixing both bop like lines and these hard hitting rhythmic moan, like riff, like ideas. It's sort of a saxophone punch bowl. And, uh, you know, I would love that party if we had this sort of punch bowl there <laughs> where we're getting the bop, but we're getting the swing, we're getting the screams, we're getting the moaning, we're getting the emotion. There's, I, I would just, I would be drunk. I would be drunk with that punch bowl.
0: <laughs> I agree. I, I might not be able to get back up after that punch bowl, Max. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> then we get some more trading between the drums and saxophone. They begin trading eight bars each. So they're doing what we mentioned before where they, you know, where the the saxophone will solo over a number of bars with the band and then the drums will take over the next section here. They're doing that eight measures at a time. And then they do four bars each and then two bars each. And then they almost go to where they're trading half measures or two beats each. And then they get almost one beat each and we get an immediate sort of call and response effect at the end of this trading section
0: yeah i was count they're trading eighth notes by the end like it gets kind of a little bit like kind of uh, like jumbled at the end but they're trading eighth notes at the very end so it is an insane progression from eight measures to eighth notes you know
1: (laughs) that's right i want us to listen to that just the tail end of of the trading section together pay attention to the shortening of the length of trading going on and how each player is really listening and reacting to each other in this moment Thank mm-hmm.
0: i'm gonna stop it there i went past i don't
1: i I don't i don't want you to stop it (laughs) i just
0: blew that stop sign there was a 246 in the song i just blew right through it i was like oh shit i gotta stop it at some point
1: (laughs) yeah because they're back into the head with all that momentum right there but it's so cool you were distracted because how great it was oh you know
0: it's so musical that is insane i mean training getting down to that it's like man that's their feel is just incredible there
1: and Gene Ammons would do that alongside Sonny Stitt, and when they do their saxophone battle, especially on the tune "Blues Up and Down," yep. if you ever check that out, you know they kind of do that same idea but with saxophones, um, and it's a little more lengthened. But here, you know, it, it's just so cool and in the pocket. And every time Jug, you know, shortens the length, it's not like he told them before the tune. I don't think. Hey, we're gonna trade eights and fours and twos and ones. They were listening to him and, and he was probably cueing, hey, now we're gonna do two bars. Now we're gonna do one bar. Yeah. And then the and then the drummer caught on. Oh, and yeah. you could tell that, you know, the first time they they shortened it, um, organ was still in. Yep. And then he, he caught on the second time it happened.
0: Yeah, it's and that to do that in the moment is just that's something that even practicing that's hard to do, you know, to but but to be able to do it in the moment and communicate it like that is it's super cool.
1: That's right. Jug screams it out on the bridge when they all come back in and then they end it with an ascending blues drenched diminished idea played by Gene Ammons and a final altered chord with some big bashes from the drums. At the very end of the track, you can hear them go into another song that is commonly known as, quote, the theme, which is typically a set closer where the leader of the band would interact with the audience for a second on the mic maybe and then they would take a break. So a lot of times the theme was a song that was used to close a set. And you can hear them go into that at the very end of this recording on, on this tune. So without further ado, let's go into "Hitting the Jug, also known as Swan Blues.
0: Yeah, and we kind of mentioned this tune a little bit earlier. This tune was composed by Gene Ammons and it appeared on his historic 1960 album Boss Tenor. And like we said, we talked about how this one has the AKA swan blues in the title. And the reason for that is, as Max said, uh, vocalist King Pleasure recorded this tune and retitled it um, as the vocalese song, which is when you put words over a melody, uh, swan blues. And his recording came out just as swan blues in 1962. And another thing to note about this version is that it's much faster than the original recording, which is on Boss Tenor. Um, and groove brings us in with a time through the form at the top, so it's just uh, groove playing, you know, um, an opening chorus on the organ, and we get some really nice rhythmic blues playing from groove here. And then the melody is characterized by band-wide hits every two bars throughout the form, and we just go through the melody one time because we're not wasting any time getting to the the swing, and that's the that's the goal here. Let's start <laughs> soloing. We'll give you the melody, but let's let's get to what what we really want to do. And so Jug uses lots of space and some really nice blues lines to start his solo out. There's a really nice development of ideas as we get into a solo. And Jug just does such a great job of introducing an idea and then fleshing it out in a way that's such so hard swinging, so soulful, so bluesy. Um, he just does such a good job of that, like giving you an idea, and then I'm just going to flesh it out in this way that's so fun to listen to. Um, and this solo is a master class in that you don't just have to move from idea to idea every single bar. Groove, or sorry, Jug will sometimes take an entire chorus just to get one point across. He'll give you an idea, and he said, I'm going a, I'm to a talk about this thing for this entire chorus, you know? And so they go into a double-time feel, which is a super nice touch. Um, But it's just the driving swing that we get out of this double-time feel is really special. Let's listen to a couple things here. Let's listen for how Jug uses space and develops an idea for an entire chorus. And then listen for the dynamics from Jug and just the musical transition out of the double-time feel and how musical it is. Let's listen to that here.
2: Oh. There's one one idea. Oh. There's The
0: way he played that, better, but The dynamics there, right? You know, like at the end, better, bah. That's so nice, and that's the.
1: That's a repeated note. I, I was talking about earlier with jug and sometimes with Dexter Gordon too. You get that. ba do di ba ba but you know that, that, that arrival point is repeated. Yep. And that's a very cool thing about some of his lines there. And I also love the, the sort of almost whining, you know, where you go. Wow. Wow. I always love that. That really hits home to me. It's a motive. It means something. He's going for it. Um, and it's vulnerable and meaningful to me.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. There's Yeah, it's just Max said the word emotive earlier, and I think that that's just such a good way to describe Jug's playing, is it's just so emotive. Um, and then Groove starts his solo with a quote, and Max picked up on the quote. What is the this uh, quote that, that Groove's given us here?
1: He's going into the Sonny Rollins tune, Blue 7, Uh, the melody to blue seven, which is neat because it brings in what we call Lydian dominant. Lydian dominant is a, is a type of, well, one, it could be a, a scale or a mode you think about, you know, uh, it's basically think about the major scale, but you're going to do a sharp four. So if you're in C major, you're going to make the F and F sharp, and then you're going to have the flat seven that you would normally have over a dominant chord. So it's like a dominant seventh chord with a sharp 11, or sharp four, uh, on top of it and in that sound. And that's what that melody blue seven brings out.
0: Yeah. And I love, I actually was like, man, I need to, I transcribe the beginning of this solo because it's just, I mean, I guess technically just transcribing the, the melody to, to blue seven, but I was like, man, this is really hip. So I, I took the time to, to, to listen to it and, and to learn it.
1: Yeah. It's basically bringing out the tritone.
0: Yep yeah which is yeah. bluesy anyways so let's uh so yeah so there's really nice blues chops from from Groove here it's really swingin at uh, 453 to 527, he holds out two notes with his top finger. Max kind of talked about this, this technique. He holds out two notes with his top finger on his right hand while he's adding some different stuff, soloing with the, the other three fingers underneath. And he's really not afraid to just extend this technique and use it for an entire chorus. And this is just a very Groove Holmes thing to do. You get other organist that'll do it. Jimmy Smith does it as well. But Groove is just really not afraid to hammer this technique home. And there's just such great feel from Groove here. He's so much fun to listen to. And as some of the other tunes, we get a trade four section between the sax and drums. That's a great addition to this tune. And then we get back into the melody on the way out of of this tune hitting the jug.
1: There's one other saxophone You know, I'm geeking out uh, thinking about saxophone here.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
1: at the 315-minute marker where Gene Ammons is playing, you know, he does these trills on some notes down the horn where you go kind of down by half-step or step, and you're trilling at the same time. That really comes from what I have heard from Ben Webster, um, the great tenor saxophonist that was with Duke Ellington and and is known for his sound on ballads and really fast tunes. Uh, so he's like, he's just a... You know, people always try and emulate Charlie Parker or John Coltrane, yada yada. So Jug has done that just with other players, maybe, or or some of his, you know, colleagues, people like Sonny Stitt or Dexter Gordon, that he sort of came up with through the Billy Eckstein, uh, big band. You know, some of that comes out in his playing here too.
0: Yeah, and you can definitely tell that he has a he has a a reverence for the hard swinging cats, the Ben Websters, the Lester Youngs just those guys who were swinging really hard. So I love hearing that. That's that part of his playing. But let's, uh let's move on to the next track, Max, Um the other standard on the album uh from uh, exactly like you.
1: Yeah. The fifth track exactly like you is a standard published in 1930.
2: Woo.
0: What a good, what, what, what a, a good year. What a year. I know, dude, I agree. I remember that. <laughs>
1: you know great depression we were gonna get the dust bowl it's it's looking up really yeah, in yeah. 1930
0: yeah things are. yeah
1: <laughs> it's not great but we do get great songs from that time including this one from jimmy mchugh he wrote a lot of tunes and dorothy fields wrote the lyrics to exactly like you these are the same cats that wrote such tunes as on the sunny side of the street Woo. have you ever heard of that song
0: I think I know it. I think I think I know a version by uh, a young man uh, called Illinois Jaquette and Milt Buckner that might happen to be and, iconic. And don't,
1: yeah, don't forget Papa Joe Jones. That's either.
0: true. I shouldn't leave him out. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> On this version of "Exactly Like You," we get an eight-bar drum intro where he set up the groove and the sticks. Um, you know, you can hear hear his, his drum beat is setting up the same tempo and groove of the song. Uh, Also, if you tune in with your headphones or maybe you turn the record player up really high, you can hear that somebody is counting off before the entrance of Gene Ammons coming in. Somebody's counting six, seven, eight, and they're counting in the bar six, seven, eight. The last three measures of the introduction before Gene Ammons comes in on the saxophone. And I wonder, is that groove? Is that the drummer? Is that the guitar player? Who do you think is counting that off?
0: I have no clue. Uh, I would guess it's the not drum, that it matters the drummer. I don't know, like if because we'll like sometimes when we play a tune, like uh, Zach will count the last, you know, or he'll just give us a one, two, three, four, you know, like at the end, you know, like the last measure. But it, like some kind of cue, which usually I would guess is maybe coming from the drummer. He's the one playing.
1: I would think I, I just number one, it it seemed odd to me because I don't know, maybe he maybe they didn't know how long he was gonna go for. Yeah.
0: And but so, yeah, so those people can count to eight, you know,
1: <laughs> Right. So why do the counting? I don't know. That was a question I had um, either way. They get into the melody after that. And then we're in a flat. So a lot of times exactly like you is played in the keys of C or B flat. Uh, a lot of times it depends on the vocalist on a gig. If the singer does this tune, they may do it in a random key. That's good for their voice here. They do it in a flat and, I'm not sure of another version that's in a flat. They seem to like the key of a flat on this record. Um, cause that pops up a couple times and I, I think another version from Gene Ammons of exactly like you is also in a flat. So maybe that's just the key jug likes to play it in. I'm not sure. Or, you know, you call it in different keys on different gigs. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but that's just something to note too. I love the way Gene plays the head on this version. He gives some space and a few added licks and ideas. His treatment of the melody on the bridge is also a bit unique. It's not really the original head on the bridge, but it's somewhat close. You know, he he may, he puts his own spin on it. We get the saxophone solo first. He comes in nice and strong, plays a number of ideas around the 9 or the 13, aka the 6. And he's also surprisingly, although not surprising to me, um, playing a lot of double-timed lines in the solo. He's sort of showing off his chops here, and he's not doing that intentionally to show off, I don't think. He's he's feeling that. And you get more chord changes in exactly like you than you would a, a typical 12-bar blues. So he's feeling like he can stretch out, play some more bop, play some more double time lines. So I want us to check out a, a, just a thirty second 30-second 30 snippet of that together, where it's filled with that sort of playing.
0: No, but then we're back to just that heavy swing, you know? (laughs)
1: That's right. We're back to the swing. It's kind of wild. It's 30 seconds straight of double time lines that he's playing. That's, I, that's hard to do. Um, you know, don't poo poo jug. Okay.
0: (laughs) That's all I got. He's got it. (laughs) You know,
1: (laughs) he's got the chops. Okay. Um, he's all over that bridge. I mean, it's crazy it's great and then he soon after that just messes around with one note this is another spot later on in the solo i want us to listen to together and and this is sort of the opposite approach where you're playing less notes and you're feeling it more and it's more rhythmic
0: Oh, I love that. And you can kind of hear groove start to bah, wah, 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 start to play on the, you know, in the space where where Jug's not playing. That's super, super awesome listening there.
1: And that's where the interaction comes in more between the rhythm section and the featured soloist, the horn player. That can happen when you're when you're more rhythmic like that, or you're leaving in space. Yep. And you're living in space like you would if you're talking to a group of people and you're asking them questions. You know, if you go on too long of a monologue, you are sort of filibustering. And you could argue maybe Jug was doing that in the 30 seconds of double time lines, even though he really wasn't, because he was putting some space in between the, the ideas and the phrases. But here really opens up, and it's just a little bit more fun, and it's a lesson that in order to say something, all you really need is one note, because he said so much there just repeating one note, right?
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, it just leaves, like, room for that communication between the band, you know? Like, if you're just, and we'll relate this to real life, if I'm just talking and I just go on a rant for three minutes to max. And every time he tries to say something, I just talk over him. That's, you know, that's no good. But what Jug does here is he leaves space for the other, you know, for the other, the rhythm section to kind of interact with what he's playing, which is really nice. And it gives us a nice conversation between the musicians.
1: It's also a moment where the audience gets more into it. And there's a moment where we're getting a connection between the jazz musicians on stage and the audience and a lot of times people tend to think that the audience doesn't matter or it matters second to the music. Um, and I think there's a moment where that proves that's not necessarily true, at least in a setting like this. Yeah. We get the guitar solo next. Great use of language in the first course of Gene Edwards' solo. I even heard the cry me a river lick, mm-hmm. you know, more direct language that we gather from uh, the great players like this. Uh, there's also Wes Montgomery-like ideas and some line-heavy ideas on the bridge, the second chorus. He's got a great full mellow tone on the guitar too. His plucking comes out at me; it's strongly articulated. He has a he's a strong articulation with how he's um, I guess with his right hand plucking the notes, and so that style uh, really comes out during the solo. Then we get Grooves' organ solo filled with more uses of calculated repetition. Proceeding double time lines let's listen to a moment of that in some ways it's very playful and fun and it also tends to show off his chops in a not so show off way
2: yeah
0: Huh? He's really emulating that same kind of double time feel that the jug is getting, uh, giving us. It's so reminiscent of what we were just listening to.
1: Yeah, the concept is very similar. Uh, the you know they're they're going at that part of the form very similarly. I don't know if Groove, you know, immediately thought that or that's just how that bridge kind of works. <laughs> you know, it feels good doing that at some moments of, of the chord changes there. I don't know, but you're right. Groove, Groove is either taking what Joke did and and, and doing it in a way that um, brings out similar things that Groove is playing. Uh, so, you know, another moment where it's interactive and interesting in that live setting. I don't know if he would have done that in the studio or not.
0: Yeah, and it definitely feels... you. I don't know if he would have played that bridge like that if it weren't if he hadn't heard uh, Jug play it like that. You know, just right before. Right. Um, But yeah, I don't know. One thing I want to mention: these solos from just these two solos definitely go and listen to this entire track, this entire album. But listen to these two solos. Listen to Jug's solo on this uh, this song, and listen to Groove solos because they are just so killer. They're so swinging. They both develop their solos so well. Just great lines, the use of repetition, rhythm, the double-time feel that we've just been harping on. It's so, so good, and it's, yeah, it's worth listening to.
1: Absolutely. We also get more trading here. You commented earlier there's a lot of trading going on in this record, and we get that again between the Saxon drums. drums. Uh, they do it over two choruses. It seems like Jug sort of, cops a few licks from groove during this trade. So maybe, you know, when they were each soloing groove cop jug and here uh jug is copying from groove. So that that might be what's going on. That's kind of what, how I hear it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Jug comes in with the head after that, the last a section, and they then do a three, six, two, five turnaround ride out until jug cues, the final hits and groove lands on an ending chord to close it out. It seemed like no ending was planned before, but what do you know? They listened to each other and they ended it more or less together. And that's how you do it.
0: Yeah. Especially when it's, yeah, it's like such a kind of jam. It feels like, you know, like they just hijacked the Monday night jam, but it's so, <laughs> right. it's so good. Yeah. I love it. But let's move on to the, the sixth track on the album entitled grooving with jug. And as you could guess, this has to be a tune that was written you know, maybe even not written, you know, just like um, just for this recording, you know, like they're the, right. both of their names are in the title. This is the first time they've played together. And this tune has an AABA form. Um, it has blues esque changes in the A section and then they do half-steps downwards during the bridge. It's a pretty cool um, song form, and I love the nice up-tempo swing feel here, and it's a really catchy melody from Jug. And then, as we've talked about, I think it's going to be the case. Jug solos first on this track, and he gives us some some moving lines here in the solo. Uh, I love the way that he plays through the bridge each time through. He'll take an idea and just kind of keep moving it down that half-step with the changes. I like the way he does that. And then Jimmy Smith's influence on Jug or sorry, on Groove is very evident here. Um, the as we get into the organ solo, the tone that he's got going, and just the all over the organ style that Groove is playing with. Uh, I love the blues double stops he's inserting so well into the lines. So let's just take a listen, and if you are familiar with Jimmy Smith, um, let's kind of get an idea. You know, just listen, and because uh, Groove was definitely influenced by Jimmy um, at the time. So let's let's listen to a little bit of of groove solo here. do you get a a jimmy smith kind of feel there
1: absolutely at least during the first a sec first couple of a sections of the form for sure the way it comes in you know it's very more technically focused which is jimmy smith's bread and butter and you know more more linear playing yep uh than than necessarily rhythmic and
0: soulful yeah which is yeah that's what we get a lot from from jimmy smith and then we get a trade four section i think we've had some kind of trade section on every song so we get a trade four section um after the organ solo which is becoming somewhat customary on the album and i can't say that i i don't like it i definitely do like it um it's a fun addition and then the melody is just really what stands out to me here on this tune it's a really catchy fun melody the solos are short, but super sweet. And it's just another great track to, to add to the album.
1: I have a question for you. If the two players featured on this album were anyone else than Groove, Holmes and Jug Ammons or somebody similar that we really, really dig, would we have a problem with how much they're trading on the album?
0: I, I love trade sections, so I don't, they're so well done, and I think they've like mixed them up well enough. Especially with the one where they trade eights and then fours, and then um, that's true. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we would, but also given the like unrehearsed live nature of this album, it feels like that's just an easy thing to to incorporate, you know?
1: Right, and trading also is good for lengthening a tune. Yeah. Um, between players who may not play that often together. You know, it's just, a, it's it does make it for more interesting playing sometimes. And I think the key here is what they deliver during the trading sections, exactly, which which make it acceptable.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it just kind of adds to that jam feeling that we're getting on this album. You know, that's a very jam thing to do. All right, we're going to trade, you know, look at someone, give them the, the four, you know, me and you, four, <laughs> right. kind of just that kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm not bothered by it much at all.
1: Yeah, I agree. And then we get uh we got two more tracks on the record. This next tune, Morris the Minor, is a twelve bar F minor blues tune credited to Richard Groove Holmes. It's uh it, it's very catchy to me, and this is a song you and I have played um a few times together. Uh very easy to do.
0: I think uh half of this album is like in our set list somewhere, <laughs> to be honest. At least half of the album. That's true. I,
1: I but here it really hit me. Cause yeah. who else who else plays Morris the Minor?
0: I've Not never heard people. yeah, but I love we didn't play it for a while, but I've been saying like let's play this tune and finally we're like, all right. But so actually I'm gonna we have a video of us playing it that's on our YouTube. Um, I'm going to link it to this show notes. So if you want to hear us, cause I, I don't know, like if people know, you know, hear us play, they probably, you guys might want to hear us play. So I'm going to link that in the show notes. So if you want to hear us playing this tune, um, go and click that link to YouTube and you can kind of hear, hear Max going off for sure. So yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. It's a nice
1: self plug. Um, yeah,
0: we got to, I mean, <laughs> and we, we talk and talk and talk. We want people to be like, okay, maybe they know how to actually play a little bit of this stuff too. So, well, you know, just put that in there.
1: A little bit. We're trying. Yeah. We're trying. We're doing our thing. Yeah. And then on, uh, as we mentioned with Morrison Minor, twelve bar F minor blues. The walking bass line from Groove introduces the tune. It's almost uh, reminiscent of Hit the Road Jack, how he's playing. You know, playing that bass line that's underneath the melody. And then when it's time to solo, Groove starts walking uh, with his left hand during the solos, and that's typical. Uh, arranging technique with a tune like this. It's a simple but catchy melody played two times uh, all the way through the form. So you get two choruses of the head and then Jug has a first solo here again. Almost every single phrase he plays lasts two measures or less, usually one bar or so. And that's something I just recently noticed while listening back to this album for this episode. He's got a lot of shorter phrases and it makes room for development and that's something i personally could kind of work on um so that's something i particularly noticed about his solo during Mer- morris minor i love when he repeats ideas too in very interesting ways let's listen to how he'll play a rhythm and repeat it with different notes as well as repeat the last note or the arrival note of a phrase for dramatic effect we talked about it a little bit earlier in the episode um, and we've come across this sort of practice with cats like Dexter Gordon too. Yeah, And the other thing about that is he's ending his solo with a double-time lick that will end with a held-out last note, usually on the 9 or 6 or something. And I tend to do that because I got that from Gene.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, that's super swinging there, the end of that solo.
1: Right. So I had to bring that out. Groove starts his solo on the organ nice and easy with some repetitive lines and brings out more blues as he continues. Lots of high notes used here, which caught my immediate attention... As well the guitar solo is after the organist nice lines used throughout some more typical bop era ideas he tends to play around more with the crimey River lick again here too here's a taste of what the guitarist provides us And there he's getting into more groove oriented improvisations towards the end of that solo. Um, and you know, the repeating of the Crimea River Lake over the different changes, that's a hip thing to do too.
0: Yeah, the bam babada bum babada yeah, that's that's, that's it, cool. Yeah. yeah.
1: The organ takes one more chorus to set up the shout section that they'll play with hits played by the saxophone and organ, then jug and groove solo, one more chorus each. I especially love the last chorus from Groove Holmes on his last solo chorus. Let's hear it together.
0: That's so... His feel is so good there, like not feeling like he has to be right dead on top of the beat, but kind of playing with the the beat a little bit. That's there's that's such good feel there,
1: right? And the ideas he is expressing, you know, they're repetitive and catchy. Yeah, and so, sometimes players don't really pay enough attention to how they're ending and ending a solo chorus like that. And there we're getting the opposite where there's a lot in that last last chorus there that provides momentum and groove and soul and it's moving the tune along and it it just, it builds and builds and builds uh, before we get Jug entering in with the head again. And when Jug does come in, they play the song two times through the form with a tag repeating the last four bars of the form three times and then a final held out chord to end it. All in all, it's a catchy track with solid, solid bass lines from Groove, soulful playing, and really gut-wrenching improvisations.
0: Yeah, and I the, talking about the bass lines. I definitely Groove is one of the organists I listen to the most as far as like learning to you know how to play a bass line, and it's it's really awesome here. Just like such good feel in the left hand and the the different ways that he expresses. Like you know, they gets from one one chord to another it's just it's super interesting to listen to and i have spent a lot of time you know listening and learning from from groove holmes and this song is is no different
1: yeah if you're an organist or piano player that's dabbling an organ you check out some groove holmes bass lines and transcribe his left hand when you can um it'll open up your world for sure
0: yeah he has a version of misty and he plays misty not as a ballad he plays it as like a you know a upbeat double time tune and his bass on that is just really if you want like a a really great groove uh bassline to transcribe is his version of Misty's is an, an awesome place to start
1: yep absolutely
0: cool well let's uh let's dive into the the final tune on the album entitled hey you what's that This tune is just a a blues tune with a simple rhythmic melody that's played by both groove and jug. And then we go right into another jug solo. So I guess we are eight for eight on jug soloing first, um, (laughs) as Max said. Uh, And so right into a jug solo after one time through the head, a really swinging solo from jug first, the way he plays over blues changes. is just so easy to listen to Um, the guitar solo is rhythmic and swinging as well. And I just I love the way that Groove starts out his solo by introducing an idea and building on that. He has some really nice intervallic lines um, in the middle of his solo, and then there's a section where he plays some double stops, um, but plays but the stops are half steps apart, and it's just super funky. So let's take a listen to kind of the way that um, that Groove's playing that here. Let me cue this up for us.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, I just love the kind of dissonant, not afraid to just like play half steps, you know, like play notes that are right next to each you know, that's that's super right super killing. Be crunchy with it. Yeah, yeah. Let it get to. It's an organ, you know. That's the that's the thing. Um, so I just I love that that little section there from from Groove. And then they go back into a sax solo where they change keys every chorus in fourths in all twelve keys. So they go they're in E flat and they start in E flat and then they go up to A flat and they just go keep going all the way around the circle of fourths. And then once they get to B flat, which is the last one before getting back to E flat. They play one time through B-flat, and then boom, we're back in the melody. It's super killing. 12 choruses, 12 different keys, circle of forts. I've never heard that before, Max, have you?
1: Not really. I mean, I've, I've there are cats that are known for doing things like that. You know, George Coleman, the great tenor saxophonist, was known for changing keys within a solo up a half-step. So you you know if you're in B flat then you go to B and then maybe the next course you go to C and then C sharp and then D and then E flat then maybe you do a 251 back to the first key or yeah. something like that. Um, but here they're doing the whole tw- you know they're doing the whole clock circle of force where you're starting in the key you're in E flat and they do one course each for each tw- for each key each major key we have. Um, and that's a great exercise. You know, when they talk about doing blues in all 12 keys, they are literally doing blues in all 12 keys in the second saxophone solo.
0: Yeah. And I was, I was playing through it just cause, uh, to like, I was like, man, okay, they're changing every, every chorus. And then I realized they're doing fourths and I'm like, man, how often do I walk bass lines in G flat or D flat? You know, I'm like, man, <laughs> I'm like, I got all the, the ones I play a lot down, but this is a good exercise. And, you know, just playing in all 12 keys and they do it all within. You know, a couple minutes.
1: That's right. And the first time I heard it um, and really thought about it, I thought maybe they were splicing, you know, different parts of choruses together. You know, maybe there was a couple of mistakes that sounded kind of bad and then they went in and, and cut, you know, different sections of the tune to put them together for the album. But no, that's not what's happening. They're, they're going in force. Um, they're changing keys every, every measure and you can hear the setup in the 12th bar. For the next key if you're keeping track of the form because they'll set up the next key yep um that's coming next and and so that's how you do that if you're if you're going to move in force like that
0: yeah yeah so that's super cool and just like a, a very fun track to end it and that's a really cool thing towards the end of the track um but yeah that wraps it up for all eight tracks on the album as we do every album we're going to do our top three and our not so hot track um, uh, Max, I'll let you go first with your top three and you're not so hot. And then I'll, I'll, uh, talk about mine.
1: All right. I, it was a little difficult to pick a top three because to me, we get sort of five great tracks and there's a couple others that aren't quite up to par with those. And so which of those five do you get rid of to get a top three? So I had to make some tough calls. Mm-hmm. Maybe there were, maybe there's some fouls on the play. <laughs> I threw a flag. <laughs> <laughs> I had to make decisions. Um, so first, I went with hitting the jug. That is the twelve-bar blues, Gene Ammons tune, where they go into double time during the sax solo. I love the the uh, that that movement from from standard time to double time. The tempo of this is much faster than the original, and that's a nice surprise. It helps with the energy of the live album feel. And Jug just delivers so much over and over again with the things I really dig about his playing. And it really, really swings hard, that tune. Um, Exactly like you also swings hard, as well as moments of other tunes that are just, you know, in the next realm of existence in terms of the swing factor Mm -hmm. or the swing spectrum. Um, but, But to me, that one really, really touches me. And I love everything Jug does during his solo in that. So number one, hitting the jug. Number two is Willow Weep for Me. That might be my favorite Jug solo on the album. I just love how dynamic it is, how emotive it is. You know, you can't go wrong with Willow Weep for Me. Great tune, great standard. Most players should know. Number three was Exactly Like You, the Double Time Solos, um, Jug's treatment of the melody. It's all super fantastic. And I love the drum introduction as well. The honorable mentions I would have to get rid of out of the top three um, or excuse me, out of the top five. You know, if we had a top five, I guess the other two would be Morris, the minor and jugging around the trading section on jugging around superb and um, the feel and the solos on Morris, the minor are killer too. And then the not so hot question I had to go with. Uh, Hey, You, What's That, which is the last blues tune on the album where they do change keys during that sax solo, which is really, really cool. But collectively as a track, it's just not quite up to par with some of the more amazing things we get out of some of the other tunes.
0: Yeah, I I think those are all great points, Max.
1: The other thing to note, which uh, is really interesting to me, is that two of my top threes... Are from the reissued CD version. So originally on the on the album, the LP version, there's only six tracks, and they leave off, uh, they leave off exactly like you, mm. and one other tune. Um,
0: you got the album right there, Max, right? I know. I'm looking. Here read they leave the, off. Read the tracks off, and off.
1: <laughs> they have good vibrations. Okay. Willow, willowy for me. Yep. Jugging around. Yep. Grooving with jug.
0: Yeah, they don't have hit in the jug. Oh, they don't or have hit exactly in the, the jug. jug. Yeah,
1: and to me, those two tunes are just superb in how and the, what they deliver. That it's interesting to have two tracks that, to me, spoke more that were not included on the original LP version, um, because typically when you reissue a record. They will include more tracks in the CD version, but they won't be quite as good as the ones that were already on the record. Yeah. And here and here there's two tunes that were not on the record that they added that were better than some of the tracks from the original record.
0: Yeah, it's why it's like because when we first listened to this album, you know, I uh, listen to it all the time on the CD version. Right. And so I didn't realize that the reissue or that the original one didn't have those two tunes. So I think Max bought me a copy. You got me my copy as a present. And I was like, wait, I was like, this only has six tracks on where are two of my favorite songs. (laughs) And so it's fun. Like, it's funny just having like, you know, when I listen to the LP, we're missing two of our three favorite songs on the album, which is a, it's an interesting note for sure. I I'm glad that you, you brought that up, Max.
1: Yeah. And, and, How would you order your top threes?
0: So I, I, you know, I, it took me a while in this. I had an idea of what I wanted and it's interesting. My top three is the same three songs as yours, but mine's just kind of a mirror image of yours. I had exactly like you first um, on my top three. And I think just the reason I just love the the song exactly like you. And I kind of mentioned this when we were talking about the, the tune in the the episode the solos on this track are so swinging so good it's just if i was gonna tell people there's these two musicians they're great they're underrated you have to listen to them like i want to show you what they can do exactly like you is such a great example of how great both of those guys are jug and groove um it's just yeah it's so so fun to listen to. So exactly like use my number one track on the album. Willow weep for me is my number two. Love, love, love jugs ballad playing. It's so fun. It's so easy to listen to. It's so emotive. Um, so dynamic. So willow weep. And I just love that tune as well. So willow weep for me is uh, my second song on my top three. And then I had in the jug third on my top three. Just such a heavy swinging blues track. The double time is so killer. Just an all around great track. Great jam live recording to listen to. So it's uh it's my number three. And then yeah, mine and one thing I do want to note, Max mentioned Morris the Minor is honorable mentions. I was trying every way to fit Morris the Minor in my top three. I almost wanted to be a top four, you know, just because it was so <laughs> right. I was like, but what? I can't get rid of any of these tracks. Like I for Morris the Minor, but that, that one I was trying my hardest to find a way in, just because it's such a cool minor blues tune. And then, so my not-so-hot is Hey You, What's That as well. And mainly the reason for that is I think there are just other blues tunes on the album that are more interesting with Hitting the Jug and then the minor blues um, of uh, Morris the Minor. So I just think there are some other blues, blues tunes that are a little bit better on the album.
1: It's wild to me. Your number one track, which i understand why I, I i'm in agreement with you it's a stellar track it's not on the original record i oh, can't get insane. over that
0: yeah oh it's such i mean <laughs> that's the first maybe the first song that we start playing off of this album it, it is yeah. it is yeah so that yeah i i agree max i don't know how who what a and r was thinking that that was a good idea but they obviously have no i, I mean that's typical for a and r's and people at record labels but we'll save that conversation for another day (laughs) um let's uh let's move on to our overall thoughts and um our ratings for this album i'll go ahead and go first and i'll let max uh give us his um his uh, yeah
1: i've I've got a dissertation here
0: (laughs) yeah that's the i was trying to think of a word but that is the word we'll let max give us his dissertation i was like max you got a damn whole paper you could submit this to a jazz history class and you'd just get an A on the entire thing. Um, So I'll go ahead and do mine first. Max is dying laughing over here. Um, So uh, I think that Groovin' with Jug has a special place in my jazz catalog. It is an album that has molded the way that I listen to, enjoy, and play jazz music. It is such a fun and energetic recording of two incredible musicians, really four incredible musicians, but really highlights uh, Jug and Groove. And the album just delivers with such high intensity and swing from one end to the other. I almost have to find time to catch my breath. I am so enthralled. The live recording atmosphere does a great job of creating such a fun environment for the musicians to thrive and feed off of the energy. And this album just serves as such a great introduction of Groove Holmes to the masses being only his second album on Pacific. He's playing alongside one of the most swinging cats of the area era, and he is making it look easy. Groove's feel is absolutely impeccable and it's no wonder he got that nickname, huh? His left hand is out of this world. He makes bass players tremble in their boots. He is an absolute pleasure to listen to and his name should be just as well known as Jimmy Smith and Jack McDuff. Uh, Gene Ammons delivers a performance that is hard to forget. He plays with so much energy, is so fun to listen to. I get lost in his playing at times, and when I close my eyes, I get the feeling that I am sitting in the Black Orchid in 1961. I wish. Um, The chemistry between Groove and Jug is unmatched and incredible, knowing this is one of the first times they have played together The album delivers again and again from start to finish, and it will be hard to find a live, raw, energetic performance that is much better or more captivating than this. If you're wondering what jazz organ music is all about, go find out. I give this record a 9.2 out of 10.
1: Well said. I I, I dig a lot of that. So here we go. I got a paper for you here. Uh, Strap in. (laughs) Groovin' with Jug is one of those albums I will never have a problem revisiting. The soul and fiery expressiveness of Gene Jug Ammons will always be attractive to me. His sound is unmatched and it is on full display here alongside a tremendous pairing with organist Richard Groove Holmes. The two deliver a heavily swinging album full of blues, soul, creativity, and fun. Aside from the uh, standards... Exactly like you and Willow Weep for me, we get a mix of originals from Jug and Groove that are based in the roots of jazz composition, yet come across as fresh and fun as anything else typically found in the contrasting, quote, modern, unquote, landscape. One interesting note about Grooving with Jug on the Pacific Jazz label is that it is a partial live album. The first three tracks, aka the first five tracks on the reissued CD version, are live from a performance at the Black Orchid, while the last few tunes are recorded in an L.A. studio from that same week in 1961. The album opens with a 12-bar blues tune titled Good Vibrations, even though the melody is the same as another tune previously performed by Ammons called The Happy Blues. It's based on a four-bar riff repeated six times. Such simple melodic construction lends itself nicely to opening up on the solos, letting players stretch. The opener also contains solos from everyone in the quartet, including guitarist Gene Edwards and drummer Leroy Henderson, lending itself as a great first track to the record. Fortunately, we do get a ballad on the album, the second tune, Willow Weep For Me. I say fortunately because Jug is one of the major balladeers of the tenor saxophone. We're met with blues-drenched attention-engulfing playing from Jug, filled with an inventive use of octave jumping, iconic vibrato, Lip Fall Moans, Rhythmic Interplay, and Moments of Bop Language. Gene Edwards's guitar solo during the tunes Bridge is also a nice touch before we round out the track with a cool Gene Ammons cadenza to end it. Jug's cadenzas are personally a favorite of mine. We get a fast AABA tune with the song Juggin' Around that features a really neat trading section between Jug and Leroy on drums, complete with creativity and a hard-to-match, fiery energy. Hitting the Jug is a live track not on the original record that is yet another moment of great energy as they eventually transition seamlessly in and out of a double-time feel. Gene's saxophone screams are particularly noticed by the audience. Groove Holmes delivers a whole lot of groove, too exactly like you is the other standard on the album drums are featured on this track a bit more heavily while we get swinging bass lines and great double time licks from groove holmes jug also provides more language based playing here paired with his hard to resist swing era romps and blues tendencies the tune grooving with jug has a catchy melody cool introduction and neat harmonic movement on the bridge groove and jug swing us right along to groove holmes's tune Morris the Minor, a minor 12-bar blues that should be able to speak to anybody. If you can't feel anything on that one, then go ahead and get yourself checked out. Jug and Groove stretch on it too, with each one taking an extra solo chorus after already performing a shout section. The album closer, Hey You What's That, is another blues tune, yet with a melody defined by its use of space. They also change keys during the second sax solo on the tune, Moving in force through every key until they end up back to the original key of E-flat when Jug comes back with the head. Very cool. All in all, this record comes along with everything I love about jazz music. Soul, blues, stretched improvisation, camaraderie, heavy swing, and unfiltered or unpretentious playing. Do yourself a favor and listen to Groovin' with Jug. It will undoubtedly make you more hip overall score 9.3 out of 10.
0: Yeah, Max, you make obviously some some great points there. Um yeah, definitely I mean, we can't stress this enough and if you can't tell, we want you to go listen to this album. It is it's such a fantastic listen. Um and it's so great if you've never listened to to Groove Holmes before. Um yeah. He's so killer. So, or Gene Ammons. I'm, you know, if you haven't listened to Gene Ammons, what are you doing? But go listen. <laughs> right. um, but our jazz, our overall jazz jam score on this album is a 9.3 out of 10. Um, and so let's talk about the album that we're going to be getting into for our next episode. And so our next episode is an album that a friend of mine, um, I had told him about a guy named Joshua Redman, and he was like, hey, have you heard this album by Joshua Redman? And the name of the album is Momentum. Um, it's a 2005 uh, release from Joshua Redman. And it's under the band name Joshua Redman's Elastic Band. And this is the only album that this group, quote unquote, put out. Um, but it's a really cool album it's got some different tunes on it some rock tunes um so yeah a friend my friend paul who i work with who's a drummer uh suggested this one and it's definitely a a fun different kind of modern album and we love joshua redmond so no point in uh, not getting into another joshua redmond album on the the podcast max have you heard this album before is this going to be your introduction to to this album
1: this is my introduction to this album i mean i've listened to a lot of joshua redmond i love that album talk about live recordings i think it's live at the village gate or live, village at, the village, live at the village vanguard and you got peter martin on piano it's that
0: we'll do <laughs> that mean, one eventually that might be a long album though we might have to truncate that one a little bit
1: or we do two episodes on it that's i don't know
0: jig a jug is just we've i mean we that's a track we've been listening to for over a decade for sure that's true that so that two bar break into this i mean i'm sorry i'm going on i, I a tantrum or a tangent here <laughs> that two bar break into the solo from joshua thats that's melded into my brain forever
1: i don't blame you um yeah so and we went over josh a little bit excuse me joshua redmond i don't know him personally i have <laughs> met him i did meet him
0: well there you go uh, josh so huh?
1: that's something yeah uh mr redmond it re, mr redmond is a fine player and uh we went over his album long gone which was 50 50. i was in love with half of that album and yeah. not so in love with the other half and if you want to you can check that episode out where we went over that newer album from joshua redmond but this will be interesting because we're going to bring in different genres and different influences and and we're going to talk about the melding of of genres and different techniques that they may do and they feature a lot of different people on that album, too. Mm-hmm. So it'll be great to get into, you know, some different names that we haven't mentioned yet.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So definitely looking forward to next week's album. Um, Take a listen to that one. Uh, before we go, I want to remind you to rate and review us um, wherever you're listening. Uh, subscribe subscribe to us. Go check out our website, um, which is linked in the show notes. It's a super cool Tool where you can see a list of our power rankings of albums, you know, go and look up, you know, see our overall thoughts on the albums without necessarily having to listen the whole way through the podcast. If you just want to read some stuff about certain albums, it's a great tool. So definitely go take a listen there. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you have or album suggestions uh, and follow us on Instagram, the Jazz Jam Podcast. We just want to thank everyone for listening and just looking at, you know, where people are listening from all over the world. Uh, it's super cool to to have people listening in so many different places. So we we truly do appreciate that and uh, we feel the, the love and support. So. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode, uh, Groovin' with Jug by Groove Holmes and Gene Ammons. This has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast.